is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business and globalization and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both from me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today we will be talking to Mark Wolf, consultant, executive coach and CEO of Lava Fish Advisors based in New York City. Lava Fish Advisors is a consultancy dedicated to helping business leaders address matters related to sustainability for long-term success. Mark is also the founder and co-chair of the New York City chapter of the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. Mark's career stretches back to the 1980s, originally in marketing and market research with companies such as Saatchi & Saatchi, Verizon, Prudential Insurance, Castrol and Guardian Life. Uh, in the early years of this decade, Mark reinvented himself when he completed an MSc in Sustainability Management at Columbia University in New York, and we will find out all about that in a few minutes. So very welcome, Mark. Thank you very much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Mark, this uh, curious name you have, Lava Fish, tell me, where did that come from? Well, thank you for asking. Um, so you mentioned that my background includes uh, quite a bit of research and uh I did a lot of work in uh, new product naming and development work along those decades that you've covered with all those jobs. And so I worked with my partner to come up with a name for our company. And we did a uh, two-person, two-hour brainstorming session. I still have pictures of the flip charts of coming up with all these different words on flip charts and saying, well, what appeals to us? What really represents what we're about? And we honed in on a few examples and we really were intrigued by the combination of the word lava and the word fish, because the idea of a fish being able to swim through lava seemed counterintuitive um, and spoke to the innovation roots that actually brought the two of us together. Interestingly, my business partner and spouse was my client for two years before any of the romantic sparks hit. So we'd actually done some of this work before we even knew we were going to be spending the rest of our lives together. Um, <laughs> So we came up with Lava Fish because we really liked the idea of, of the counterintuitive piece of it. Um, and then, of course, I went and Googled it on the Internet just to make sure that somebody else wasn't doing it. And it turns out that Lava Fish is a mythical creature in the gaming culture, okay. uh, which is not something I was, was aware of. And we created a logo that looks nothing like the mythical creature in gaming culture. So that's how Lava Fish was born. Okay. I wondered whether lava fish actually existed and maybe, you know, that there was a cool lava under the sea and there was a fish that kind of lived in it, but not so. Well, listen, there's a lot, a lot of things happening underneath the ocean that we're just beginning to discover uh, new things and how much more we don't know. Exactly. Inner space. So it's it's always possible. Yeah. So um, tell me then the services and activities of Lava Fish Advisors. So uh, in the intro, I mentioned it's centered around sustainability and helping leaders in matters related to sustainability. Could you give us a bit more flesh on that, on that skeleton? Sure. So the core business in the consulting is really strategy design and execution. And that can cover a whole range of somebody wants to add a new element into their existing sustainability strategy and program at a large multinational corporation or it's a company that is coming relatively new and late to the game and needs to have a, um, a strategy from soup to nuts uh, developed and put into place. Uh, and that tends to happen more with small and medium enterprises who are becoming aware of the need to do this to stay competitive or there's personal conviction that's bringing them to the table. I actually believe a lot of this is being driven by 
larger trends such as the science-based targets initiative where um, there's an effort now to make companies take responsibility for their amount of carbon emissions and plan over the next 30 years how to get to a zero carbon economy and take responsibility for everything that happens in their value change, both upstream and downstream. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about going uh, upstream, then you obviously you're talking about tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers. Okay. Um, and then the ideal clients, who would be your ideal clients? So my ideal clients actually are at the C-suite level, executive managing director level. Um, they're people who may not have had sustainability as a major part of their portfolio, but it's having a much larger impact on their portfolio. I think if 20 years ago, you talked to a chief financial officer about having to worry about how they're measuring and managing risk around sustainability, they would basically have said to you, that's not my job. Meanwhile, in the last three and a half years, you've had um, the Financial Standards Board has come up with what's referred to by its initials TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And now that most of the large global investment and asset managers are paying attention to risk analysis and risk scenarios, now CFOs very much care about how those risks are being measured and managed, not only in day-to-day -day operations today, but how you're planning for recovery in the event of uh, climate-related events in the future. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that, you know, you like to work with uh, decision makers and often it's about formulating strategies and executing strategies. As a general question, uh, this struggle that lots of executives have of actually getting themselves into strategic thinking as opposed to being swamped in the day-to-day, -day, is that something you, you come across and how do you help them to get out of the reeds and into kind of thinking in a more strategic mode? Great question. Thank you for asking that. So I, I use a combination of executive coaching skills and tools that I've developed over the length of my career about how to use personal influence to create relationships where you can tap into ex expertise that exists inside the organization, but also figure out how to carve out that, that all elusive thinking time that you need to sit down and, and, and have to be able to plan for a future that has a lot of unknowns to it. You know, I don't think two years ago, many companies were thinking about uh, having their workforce working from home. And now all of a sudden that's happened and causing a whole bunch of assumptions to be, you know, to be rethought. So really, I think the difference that, that I make is to bring the outside in and the inside out perspective that executives who are, who are so busy with all the responsibilities they have and that they're being held accountable for oftentimes just don't have time to think about. And I think one of the key things is having been in executive roles myself in Fortune 500 US-based companies, you know, I, under, I understand that there's a limited amount of, um, of uh, gray matter space for this. So how are you succinct, how are you specific, and how are you very targeted in developing what needs to be done, deciding who's going to do it, creating an accountability structure, and then staying involved enough so it doesn't go off the rails, but not so involved that you lose sight of, of what your primary area of responsibility is. It's interesting how volatile the world has become and how much changes so quickly, but also how much doesn't change. And because I read recently or reread um, Drucker's 1967, the effect of 
executive. And exactly these things you're talking about here in terms of carving out quantum of time to focus on the, the important things was as valid then as it is today. And it's interesting, the things that don't change. Uh, Absolutely. How would you say clients are better off after having worked with you? Well, I think I think it's pretty clear um, in the client engagements that I that I've worked on that people have greater clarity, um, greater accountability, and they have results that probably exceeded their expectations going into um, the working relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's both in terms of the strategic consulting work that I do and the executive coaching work that I do. Okay, and what what would a typical engagement look like? Well, the truth of the matter is I haven't had typical engagements. Everyone has been unique, um, almost like an, an engagement unicorn, because um, you have some companies that are really leading on the leading edge of all the aspects that are out there in terms of sustainability, environmentalism, climate change, carbon emissions, uh, being stewardships of water, ESG, socially responsible investments as opposed to socially responsible investing. And yet the stakeholder groups that are holding large multinationals feet to the fire keep asking for more. If you look at what a a sustainability officer in a a major multinational has responsibility for now versus what they were being held accountable for two years ago, responsibility has has grown more than double. Um, And oftentimes the staff and the budget doesn't come along with it to be able to respond to all these organizations but they're being held accountable for keeping resolutions out of the shareholders annual meeting. They're being held accountable for making sure that they're not being called out in the media by NGOs for not adhering to or not producing or not um, basically being the good corporate citizen that a company wants to project. And oftentimes you have things happening in the supply chain, uh, you know, beyond tier one suppliers, even with tier one suppliers, that um, that the multinational is being held accountable for, even though it's it's a subcontractor who's who's doing the deed, whether it's a, a, a good deed, which oftentimes doesn't receive a lot of press, or is doing a deed that creates an adverse public reaction. Do chief sustainability officers already exist, or will they exist? They do exist. Um, and what I've found over the years that I've been doing this work is that CSOs are often the ones who are have breadth and depth of responsibility commensurate with the challenge will oftentimes pluck from within the organization that they've been there 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And it's like, we trust you. You know our organization, you know our values. We want you to take a look at this and take the responsibility for it and run with it. Mm-hmm. There's been some amount of movement of people who have background and experience from one organization into into new organizations and into a new role at another organization. Um, But but more often than not, the majority of of chief sustainability officers in that role, sometimes it's um, uh, within the communications department, sometimes it's within investor relations, sometimes it's within the operations department. Uh, For the most part, the person who's the senior senior most um, has come from within and you're starting to see um, something of a shift in terms of people who are, you know, have been with companies long enough that they're retiring, um, and you're seeing the number two starting to come in and, and take those and take those positions. Okay. In your your own case, you reinvented yourself 
sometime near the, the, the beginning of this decade that we're just ending now. Because your former career, there was a lot in, in marketing and insurance and various different sectors you were yeah. involved in. I mean, basically, I, my, my, my prior career focused on um, market research and strategy. Yeah. So how did the invention come about and why did it come about? Well, I think there's two parts to that question. First of all, in the early 1990s, I was working for Castrol Motor Oil, which is now part of BP, and learned far more about engines and all of the chemicals that make them run than I ever thought I'd want to know. <clears throat> and at that point, decided to buy, uh, when there were only three models to choose from in the entire world, a, a, um, a hybrid vehicle. I bought a Honda Civic Hybrid. At that point, there was a Honda Insight and there was the Toyota Prius, and that was it for um, hybrid vehicles. Um, so my passion for reducing my my footprint on the planet has been around for a long time. The pivotal moment for me came um, almost a decade ago. My father was um, a psychotherapist in New York City, and he ended up um, passing away because he had a brain tumor. And he saw patients up until three weeks before he passed. He was just totally identified and totally his total persona was that of helping other people. One of his patients wrote me a note that really changed my life. He said, your father was instrumental in the transformation and illumination of my life. And that really caused me to stop, take a deep breath, ask myself, what's my legacy going to be? And I really, at that point, felt that while I was doing excellent quality work in large companies, it wasn't really making a difference for humanity. And I wanted to do something with greater impact. So um, I had had my eye on the, the sustainability management program, the MSC program at Columbia University, and went to an information session. And as they went through it, now, mind you, I had not been at university for three decades. You know, they're going through who's this set up for? And it's basically every, every bullet point was, that's me, that's me, that's me. So I went back to school when most of my peers were thinking about retiring and hitting the golf course or whatever they want to do in retirement. Um, I was a full-time student in a program that was designed to be part-time. I got involved in the student government and brought a lot of my skills there. And I really am so grateful for the worldview that I was able to develop. I had a very short commute from my apartment to the university, but um, half the students in my program came from 90 other countries to New York to study this topic. And I learned as much from them and their perspectives as I did from the, from the professors in the front of the room. And that really is what led me to start a professional chapter of the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. There's so much work going on in this space, just in the greater New York City area at the supranational, national, state, local level, not to mention foundational work um, that, that, that goes on that's headquartered in New York City. And I said, why aren't these communities talking to each other? Um, so I looked around to try to find a community, didn't see one and said, I'm gonna create it. And you know, started in my living room six years ago and first event was five years ago. We've done 45 events, recently going to virtual due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, we have a list of, of engaged people that's, that's as large as the total membership of ISSP Global um, and we're creating those, that community and those conversations among people who are working in different aspects and facets of sustainability. What's the predominant attitude of business in America currently to sustainability? Is it viewed as a necessary evil? Is it a kind of a reluctant compliance or are companies embracing it as a source of competitive advantage? I think, I think it's a combination of all three. 
the clients that I'm talking to are looking to move from addressing NGO requests for information and addressing investor response requests for information and trying to move it to the next level and incorporate it into business strategy. I mean, you have companies like Unilever who are really paving the way and you know, designing their business strategy around being sustainable and, and around being stewards of resources and, um, and circular economy and all the things that are gonna help us get to a zero, a zero carbon economy. Um, but a lot of other companies that they've had programs in place, the line of sight between the chief sustainability officer or the VP of sustainability and the CEO, oftentimes is two, three, four levels in between. So it's something where the company is putting time and resources against it, but it's not at the same level of sales, of profitability, of share price, um, of, of growth. And companies that do wish to embrace it as a source of competitive advantage, what kind of metrics or standards or frameworks might they consider using or implementing? Well, I think I think that the answer to that question is it's regional. I did a, a quick back of the envelope set of calculations looking at science-based targets, which basically says you need to if you sign up for this, you put together a plan that you take some responsibility for either getting to two percent, the one and a half percent, or or a one percent Celsius scenario. Um, there are a couple of checkpoints between now and 2050, and you put a plan together about how are you going to get there. And I took a look at the 1,045 multinationals that have signed up for it just to see where in the, where regionally that's taking place. And, you know, not surprisingly, 49% of the companies are in Europe. And just so you know, one, one and a half percent of the globally are in Ireland, 11% are in the UK, France, 7%, Germany, 5%. When you take a look in North America, which is only 19% of these of these companies, 17% of that is in the United States, um, which is about equal to Japan and India combined in, in terms of doing this. So science-based targets is one way of, of getting there. And it really takes a look at what your total carbon footprint is and a plan for reducing it to zero through a combination of renewables and, and getting off of fossil fuel-driven energy generation. With the incoming uh, administration in the U.S., how do you see the agenda shifting in relation to sustainability in the U.S., and I guess consequently in the rest of the world? And do you think the U.S. will be rejoining the Paris Climate Accord? Well, I, I mean, that's sort of that's been stated that one of the first things that Biden is going to do um, at the point at which the Rep Republicans start recognizing the election results as, um, as valid and that he is the president-elect is to rejoin the Paris um, the Paris Climate Agreement. And he was in an administration that helped negotiate that. So I think that that's gonna have a huge impact because one of the projects I was working on coming into the beginning of the, of the four-year term of, of our current president was the Clean Power Plan, which was basically creating uh, targets that states, individual United States in the, of the 50 states have to meet in terms of changing their mix from fossil fuel-based um, energy generation to renewable-based energy generation. Um, and it left it up to the states to decide how to get there, whether it was going to be based on um, wind, solar, <clears throat> hydro, nuclear. Um, and that work was was moving along until um, the current administration reversed course and saying, no, we're going to double down on fossil fuels. So I think the infrastructure is there. 
And certainly if you take a look at the the cost of, of renewable energy has come down to the point where it's not only cost competitive with fossil fuels, but in many cases it's less expensive, which is why you're seeing a faster acceleration in, in the retirement of coal-fired coal plants. And I think if the United States, when the United States re-engages with the, uh, the Paris Climate Accords, it'll make a difference because the other large economies uh, that, are build, that are still building coal-fired plants as a way of trying to bring prosperity to their, to their countries um, will pay closer attention and maybe rethink their strategy, China in particular. Just you, you know, we've been you know engaging in in other conversations in relation to changes in global supply chains and reshoring and so on and globalization. Where do you think we are in in that process? You know, we've seen since two thousand fifteen, two thousand sixteen, with Trump and Brexit and uh, other considerations, and now COVID that's kind of pushed back against globalization. And now we have this change in the U.S. this electoral change that may also have repercussions. Where do you think we are in that? globalization process? Are we, are we stalled? Is it a blip? Are we changing to something else? What do you think? Um, my per- This is my personal opinion. I think that globalization is still here, but that the, the very nature of it is going to change. Um, some of the work that you and I have been discussing within supply chains, you know, suggests that the original push to do globalization was always about low cost, low cost, low cost. But when you take a look at the imperatives that um, are really being driven by uh, the Paris Climate Accords and the and the and the clear demand for the planet to get to a zero a zero carbon economy, that's going to change the calculus on supply chains quite a bit. So I think where we're going to go is more to a regionalized approach. Um, it's not going to make sense to put uh, e-waste for recycling on a ship to send it across the Pacific Ocean to China to get it pulled apart and turned into reusable stuff to then get back on a ship and ship it back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. as feedstock. I think that companies are going to look for more creative ways to access uh, those types of resources in a circular economy environment closer to home. Now, that's not to say that there won't be trade between the U.S. and China. It's too interdependent for there not to be. I think it's just going to change rather dramatically, and it's not going to be um, well, labor's cheaper over there, so we do it over there. It's going to be a lot more factors in the calculation. Okay, we might just uh, change tack as we come into the last couple of minutes of the interview, and maybe I'll just focus on you as a, as an individual. So when you're not working or thinking about sustainability and business and so on, what do you like to do in your, your spare time? Well, family and friends are, are really where I like to spend my energy and my spare time, but there's a lot of outdoor activities um, that I've loved for a long time and that have recently come into my life. So I do like to, I'm an avid skier, been doing some bicycling, <clears throat> some hiking, uh, took up kayaking in the last two years. Uh, because of COVID, I'm actually not going to be skiing this year, but I have a pair of snowshoes. So I'm planning to do some snowshoeing. Um, and I have been uh, out, outside of New York since the, uh, the pandemic began um, in, uh, in the mountains of Vermont. So I've actually been appreciating uh, locally sourced farm-to-table farm food and gotten to know quite a few of my farmers but by first name and uh, shared some resources that I know that could make a difference in their operations, but can actually detect the difference between kale grown on one farm and kale grown on another farm or... or uh, the terroir of uh, the kale, huh? Sure. 
<laughs> so the uh, are you reading anything currently that uh, inspired you that you would recommend to listeners? Yeah, I think there there are two books that I'm reading currently. One is uh, Fearless Leadership by Alan Weiss. Uh, he 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 recommended that just to, uh, came out with that a few months ago. And the other book that I'm reading, which I really have gotten a lot out of, and I keep referring to, is The Power of Decision by Raymond Charles Barker. Uh, because a lot of the a lot of the work that I'm doing in consulting and executive coaching talks about the power of influence, and the and the way in you, <clears throat> one uses your influence really comes down to making decisions about yourself and people that you're in, you're impacting. So that's Raymond, the power of decision by Raymond. What was the middle name? Raymond Charles Barker. Okay, Raymond Charles Barker. Okay, so uh, to finalize then, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I think the best piece of advice that I've ever received is to just be myself and don't try to be what other people think I should be. Okay, then. Well, with, with that, Mark, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. So many thanks for being here with us. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com, my Twitter on hashtag albalogistics, or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books, or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.